So, if you've been here uh, more than once, if you've ever heard Mark Glesney talk, you have heard him talk about how the whole Bible is about Jesus, right? It doesn't matter if we're talking about Ruth. It doesn't matter if we're in the book of Romans. It doesn't matter if we're in the book of Jonah. It doesn't matter if we're in Revelation. The whole thing's about Jesus. In the Old Testament, we, we're looking forward to Jesus, right? In the Gospels, he's here. And in the New Testament, we're, we're talking about the things that happened while he was here and how he fulfilled all of those things that the Old Testament talked about. And now we sit as the church today and we look two places. One, back to who Jesus said he was and what he accomplished. And we look forward to the fulfillment of promises that he made the last time he was here. Okay, so the whole Bible is about Jesus. A lot of times we connect that um, by looking at characters like the characters in the book of Ruth and we talk about Jesus being our loyal kin- kinsman redeemer. Um, so we're headed into the book of Hebrews and you, have to work, you don't have to work very hard in Hebrews to figure out how it's about Jesus because the whole book's just actually about Jesus right? Jesus is, uh, is, is superior to all of the other prophets. His, his role in salvation, um, he's greater than Moses, which the Jews couldn't conceive of very many people that are greater than Moses because he received the law originally, and the Jews lived by the letter of the law. So Hebrews talks about that, and that's a radical statement to say that anyone's greater than Moses. Um, uh, Jesus is the perfect high priest that the new covenant that Jesus ushered in is superior to the old covenant, right? The old covenant was kind of like a band-aid, thank you. The old covenant was kind of like a band-aid, and Jesus is the cure, right? Jesus' new covenant cures sin. It doesn't make allowances for you to continue to relate to God one year at a time. It, it, it stamps sin out. So, so we have just come out of Ruth, and we're going to head into Hebrews. Um, before we do that, Zach's going to take a detour into the Beatitudes, which is part of the Sermon on the Mount. So the Sermon on the Mount is the longest singular piece of teaching that we have from Jesus. Um, definitely one of the most widely quoted parts of the Gospels, probably the entire Bible. And there are a lot of things there that um, are familiar to even non-believers, right? A lot of people know the Lord's Prayer. Well, how should we pray? Our Father who art in heaven, etc. Or the Beatitudes, blessed is the, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Um, before we do that, Right, so before we go into that mini-series, we're going to take just tonight, and we're going to talk about the person of Jesus as a, as a real dude who lived and walked here, and the way that he interacted with the world around him. And there's a reason that we're going to do that. Before we launch into Hebrews, which reads almost like Christ's resume, right? There's a lot of things there that he— he, that the, the author talks about, where he, he's fulfilled this, he's fulfilled this, he's fulfilled this, he's ushered this in, he is this, he's the fulfillment of this, this is complete in him. And it's very, it's a very powerful list of Jesus' accomplishments. Before we get there, um, I, I think that our ability to be confident in Jesus' accomplishments is directly tied to our ability to understand who he is. But if we don't understand who he is, which is largely our understanding comes from simply who he said he was. If we don't understand who he is, our confidence in what he has accomplished and what he will accomplish, it can't be that great because we have to understand the significance of the man himself. Um, And the reason for that is because we're made to worship, right? Um, And if we claim to worship Jesus or if we want to, um, then it's important that we know who he is and why we worship him because we will worship anything, like rock stars, celebrity, money, you know, some people probably l- legitimately worship their pastors, um, and, and it's easy to do. 
golden cows, right? I don't know that any of us, has anyone ever worshipped a golden calf? No? No one? Okay, so the, the Jews did that, um, which is weird, right? So it's at the stage for that. We're going to talk about this, but so we're, we're in Exodus. It's like Exodus 32, and we've got the Jews are in 400 years of slavery. We'll set the stage really quick. Slavery, Moses, eviction, get out of here, right? And then they, they don't just leave. They loot the place on the way out. The Egyptians are like, take our gold, take our silver, and get the heck out. Because if you stay, we are all going to die. Because as of right now, all of these plagues have happened, and all of our firstborn sons are dead, so go and take our money on the way out. They wander through the desert, and they come to the foot of Mount Sinai, and Moses goes up on the mountain to get a, to get a word from the Lord, which ended up becoming the law. Not just the Ten Commandments, but the whole law. And uh, the Jews get bored, and they make a golden calf, and they begin to worship it. Not just, the, not just like the stragglers. This is Aaron who presides over this, Moses' brother. So they've just been through this, this massive exodus, and they saw oceans open up and close on the armies of Egypt. And they've been through all of these things. And they take the gold that they looted from Egypt, and they make a golden calf out of it. And Aaron says, this is your Lord, and let's offer sacrifices to it. Right? So the real lesson there is that the, in the absence of any real God, we very quickly fill the void. In the absence of an understanding of who Jesus is and who he said he was and what he said he did and what he, what he said he was going to do, we will fill that void very quickly. Um, because that money wasn't theirs. This is, this is 400 years of slavery. This is not family inheritance. They didn't have wealth. This isn't like I... I spent 50 years building the pyramids and I just cashed my 401k out on the way out of Egypt and now I'm going to take this This is money that God gave them just because God likes to show off. I'm not just going to get you out of slavery. You're going to loot the place on the way out. And they took the gold that they had, which probably reasonably is the only reason they would even have gold anyway. And Moses is gone for a long time and they say, well, we don't know where this fellow went. So golden calf maybe? Right? So in the absence of the understanding of what was happening, what was transacting with Moses up on Mount Sinai, which is a whole different story, right? That's a really cool story of the interaction that happens there between Moses and God. They make up a God and they start to worship it. And they praise it for bringing them out of slavery. At the foot of the mountain where God descended upon the top and was talking to Moses about this is how you ought to live. It's mind-boggling how quickly we will fill the void of a, of a proper understanding or a proper orientation towards God um, because we're made to worship. Um, so we're going we're gonna to try to delve pretty quickly into who Jesus said he was, and then we're going to look at, at an interaction that he had with, with a person in uh, the Gospel of John that's this wicked personal. It's really personal. There's nothing super heavy or massively theological about it. It's just a conversation. Um, so one, though, before we get there, Jesus made some pretty astonishing claims about his own teaching. And I don't want to delve so far into the personal side that, you know, if you're here every week, great. But I don't want to just talk about Jesus, the, the, the man, and lose any uh, reference point for, for other things that are really important about him. So he made astonishing claims about his own teaching. Matthew 5.18 says, For truly I tell you that until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, least the stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. 
Now, this is not a radical statement. This is not unlike anything that any other rabbi would say. All he's saying is that the Old Testament is from God and that it's factual and that it can't be tampered with, no big deal. But if you fast forward 19 chapters, he makes the same claim about his own words in Matthew 24, and he says, heaven and earth are going to pass away, but my words will always remain. Wait a minute, so your words are like the Old Testament words? No, well, not really. They're better. <laughs> wait, wait, what? Wait, who do you think you are? Because I get the bit about the Old Testament, but, but who are you? And Zach's going to start there with the Beatitudes, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And it says at the end of that passage, I think it's the end of Matthew 7, that one of the reasons that people believed him is because he taught with an authority that they had not seen before. Right? That they believed him because he asserted himself with authority. And he was basically rewriting a couple of thousand-year-old understanding of what the Old Testament was. Right? And he's making astonishing claims about his own teaching along the way. Right? You've heard it said, don't commit murder. I'm going to tell you if, you, if you hate your brother, then you're guilty of that. You heard it said, don't commit adultery. But if you look at a woman or a man, right, lustfully, then you've committed adultery in your heart. And he goes on to talk about divorce and the way you should make oaths and love for your enemies and how you should give to the needy and even how you should pray at the very end. That's an astonishing thing for, for anyone to make those claims. So he made staggering claims about his teaching. We're not going to spend too much time there, but understand that, that as you unfold that, the things that Jesus said about his own teaching and the value of his words and the value of his interpretation of the law and the relevance of the Old Testament to himself, they're staggering and no one had ever made them before with authority. Number two, he claimed that he would be directly involved in the wrapping up of, of the world. Um, in John 14, says, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. I'll come back, and I'll take you to be with me so that you can be where I am. Right? I'm going to go away, but I'm going to come back. If, if you want to make a million dollars, almost die and write a book about it, and then come back and write a book about it. We love near-death experiences. And there are all kinds of really, really great books about them, and people are fascinated by it because whether we're Christian or any other kind of faith, we, we want to take a peek behind the curtain and see what's, what's, what's beyond, right? Now, we're not necessarily prepared to accept Jesus in that category. Like, I can walk up to someone and go, so what if I told you about a guy who actually died and then came back? And then wrote a book about it. We're like, whoa, what's his name? It's like Hunka, Shula, Monkey, Doodle, something or other. No, 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 Jesus of Nazareth. We're like, ah, oh, get out of here. That's old. I've heard that. I've heard that before. But Jesus made that claim, right? That, that, that now that I've accomplished this, I'm going to go away. And I'm going to come back. And I'm going to prepare a place for you so they can take you to where I am. In John 5, uh, verse 24, he says, Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but is crossed over from death into life. Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and is now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he's granted the Son also to have life, and he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. And so at this point, right, this is Matthew 5, or John 5, 27, he knows that people's faces are to hold jaws, it's going to be on the floor. And so he responds, he says, don't be amazed by this, for time's coming when everyone who's in their graves will hear his voice. And they'll come out. And those who've done what is good will rise to live. And those who've done what is evil, they still rise, but they get condemned. Because I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. 
And when the Son of Man comes in glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will gather before him and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from goats and he'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. All right, so Jesus made staggering claims about his own teaching. He made staggering claims about his own involvement in the end of the world. And people are still trying to wrap their brains around it. You read all through the scriptures. Aren't you, wait a minute. Aren't you the son of Joseph the carpenter? Yeah. That's me. Jesus of Nazareth, right? Yeah. Bold. Also not something that, that the Jews or the Gentiles, for that matter, had encountered that kind of authority. Because they'd spent so much time waiting for this person that to hear someone kind of show up and go, yeah, this is actually me. It, it was a shift for them. Like they were, it's like when you're in love with being in love, right? Like they were just, their, their religion was the process of waiting. And their religion and their faith had become the band-aid that God invented to get them through the time the Messiah would come. But they had accepted that as the way things were. And they had adopted it as this is the way that we relate to God. And had lost the, no, 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 it's pointing to something else. And the Pharisees took grand advantage of that. So number one, he made some pretty bold claims about his own teaching. Um, number two, he made direct claims to be directly responsible for what would happen when everything wraps up. And number three, so we're going to camp for most of the night. He made some pretty staggering claims to be able to meet the spiritual needs of every individual. Right, if you read through the Gospel of John, you, you'll come across seven statements that are referred to as the I am statements. And that, that phraseology, the, the, the Jews were sensitive about because that's how God the Father identified himself. Right? Not I am something, just I am. He said that to Moses out of the burning bush. So, okay, I'm going to go to Egypt. I'm going to tell Pharaoh that a, a fiery bush told me to come and tell you to let the Bush's people go. I don't know if you heard me and Pharaoh, we've got some issues. That's why I'm here talking to a bush in the middle of the desert. Just tell him that I am sent you. You're what? Nothing. I'm everything. I, I am. There's no predicate there. It's not attached to anything. And Jesus made those statements, some of them with predicates, right? He compared it to other things, but sometimes he just said the same exact thing. I am. I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness. I'm the door. I'm the good shepherd, right? Before Abraham was, I am. And that was a big one. That's one of those ones that's not attached to anything else. This is not an analogy. I am the bread of life. Because the Jews could conceive of no one greater than Abraham. And in controversial teaching, they said, we don't have to listen to you. We'll go straight to the source. We will go to Abraham. And the Abrahamic covenant says this. He says, listen, before Abraham, I am. Not I was. He wasn't claiming to be really old. Saying, oh, I've, I've been around for a long time. I knew Abraham. We went to high school together. <laughs> That's not what this was. Before Abraham, I am. And it says there in, in John 8 that the Jews tried to stone him. So in case you're writing down notes, you, you can notate John 8, it's John eight fifty six as a direct claim of Jesus to be God, by the way. Because there are people who will say, that, well, Jesus never actually said he was God. And he never actually said the words, I am God, but he made the staggering claim a lot of times directly and a lot of times indirectly. This is very, this, I would still say it's indirect, but he, he equated himself to eternal, immortal existence by 
conjuring the name that God identified himself with to Moses, which would have been of great significance to the Jews, and they wanted to kill him. They didn't want to kill Jesus because he said he was really old. That was not their response to that. Right? Uh, I'm the resurrection, the life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. You can't get to God the Father unless you come through me. I'm the true vine. Right? So those are all in John. Um, and he's making claims there to be able to meet the spiritual needs of people, that he alone could meet everyone's needs for peace and security and direction, and that he alone could bring them into a living, eternal relationship with God. And we're going to look at one of those encounters tonight in, uh, in the book of John. So just be clear, he's not making interesting statements here. He's saying, follow me and you'll never walk in darkness. Uh, if you walk with me, I'll take you directly into the heart of heaven. And I don't know how anyone could come onto the stage of human history and make these kind of claims, right? C.S. Lewis said that the person who says these kind of things is one of three things, right? He's, he's, either, he's either a liar, and he knew that it wasn't true, and he made it up to garner fame or wealth or, or popularity or whatever, and, and he, he wove these elaborate lies that he knew people were in a state of waiting, in a state of brokenness, and that, that the people were divided Jews and Gentiles. And he walked into the middle of it, and he took advantage of their emotional state, and he created himself as a persona that they'd been waiting for for thousands of years. Newsflash, the moment right before nails drive through your wrists and you suffocate to death hanging on a cross, you give up the ghost on the lie. That's just my opinion. I wouldn't even make it that far. Like when they're punching me in the face or tearing a beard out of my face or all of the things that we read about happened to Jesus, you don't hold on to it that long. JK, bro. <laughs> right? <laughs> so one, he could be a liar. I don't believe him to be that based upon the things that I read in the Gospels. He could be just totally smacked crazy. It's an option. His, his teachings don't read like the teachings of a crazy person. C.S. Lewis says that his brain is the equivalent of a man who thinks he's a poached egg right? That he's totally fruitcake crazy. Or that he's actually Jesus. That he doesn't leave us the option that he's just a good man or he's a really good teacher because people like the things that Jesus says. No one's going to say, love is a bad thing. Don't love, hate your enemy. Some people will say that actually. But generally, those, those are things that are, are widely accepted as good, respectable traits. So we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. We, we don't want Jesus to be God. So he was always a good teacher. He was a great, great moral teacher. So he was a great moral teacher that lived and continues to live one of the biggest lies in the history of humanity. Or he was crazy, or he was Jesus. Um, so again, one, he made some pretty staggering claims about his own teaching. Two, he said that he's going to be directly involved in packing the whole bag up in the end and ushering in a new kingdom. And three, he made direct claims that he and he alone could meet every spiritual need of every individual, period. We're going to look at at one of those encounters tonight. Um, So John chapter 4, if you have your Bible, John chapter 4 is where we're going to camp out for the rest of the evening. And while you're turning there, I'm going to tell you about a guy named James Smith. Um, He was born in Dallas, Texas. He graduated from Waltrip High School in 1967. He went to Sam Houston State University. Any, Any Texans here? No? No one here from Texas? Go Bearcats? No? Okay. That's cool. He's been married to his wife, Sherry, for over 30 years. They have two children who are also married, a Jeremy and a, a, a Tiffany. Um, he's a little bit of a social conservative. So if you want to talk about politics, which is a common conversation right now, um, you're going to get a conservative point of view. He's staunchly pro-life, not a huge fan of the current political administration. 
he owns a John Deere tractor. He's really proud that for a man still in his 70s that he, um, that's funny, John Deere's, what were you guys talking about? <laughs> okay. Um, you're like, no, I have a John Deere tractor too. It's awesome. Um, uh, he's proud that for a man uh, firmly into his 70s, he still mows his own lawn every week. He has uh, a great sense of humor, but the focal point of his life right now is his seven grandchildren, and he loves them, right? And he's all in on his grandchildren, and if they're playing a sport, he and his wife Sherry are there. If they, if they have a, an event at school, he and his wife Sherry are there. They, um, I, and I love that he does this. He recently took his oldest, his oldest granddaughter um, to New York, and they had a high tea together. Right? And I'm not talking about the kind of stuff you do in the morning at your Keurig in the kitchen. I'm talking about high tea, fancy, schmancy, highfalutin, high tea. Um, he has a, a, a dog named Oliver, a 36-pound golden doodle who's a little crazy, so they had him neutered a couple weeks ago, thinking maybe he was going to calm him down. Okay? So you're starting to get a picture of the kind of life James leads, right? So confession real quick, I have no idea who James is. I just Googled right before we started what's the most common name in the United States, and I pulled up Facebook, and I put James Smith, Texas, and I just started scrolling, and I found the first picture that looked like an inviting chap, and I perused his Facebook for about 10 minutes, and those are the things that I learned about him, okay? He's a real guy. I'll show you his Facebook. All those things are true, and I would imagine how freaked out he would be if I ran into him. I'm like, dude, so is Oliver still wigging out, or did the, like, is that better now, or... Um, so <laughs> social psychologists would tell you that I don't know James Smith, but that I know about him, right? I don't have personal intimate knowledge. I, I know about him. It's called impersonal knowledge. And what that means is that I'm acquainted with him. I could smoothly enter into conversation with him. We would recognize each other, although he wouldn't recognize me. It would be really awesome if he would, like, for some weird reason, listen to God Speaks podcast or listen to sermons on the web. He's like, wait, that's me. He's talking about me. <laughs> So just to be fair, I added James. I'm going to give him a heads up. Um, So I I could enter into a a social passing with him pretty fluidly. Now, the odd thing is that I've just described the bulk of our relationships, right? For the most part. And that's okay, because you can't just go all the way deep with every single person you meet, or you'd just be a mess, right? Now, if I could go to Texas and sit across from Jim and have breakfast with him, talk to him, about the fears that he has for his grandchildren or the struggles that he has in his marriage or the joys that he's currently walking in in his relationship with the, the Lord. The things that we don't put on Facebook, information that's shared because you take the time to lovingly be in someone's life and they start to reveal parts of themselves to you, then I could, now, then I could stand in front of you and say, I, I know Jim. Right? I know him because, not because I know his dog's name or how he likes his steak cooked or that he likes to have a high tea or that he will wear as many feather boas as his granddaughter can possibly fit into her little suitcase. I know him because I've seen aspects of his heart that are hidden from the general population. And that's where we're going to try to go tonight with the person of Jesus. Right? And I'm going to try to parse the difference between knowing about Jesus and actually knowing Jesus, more importantly, being known by Jesus. Right? So it could be, I personally, in my own study, I've been reading through the Gospels over the last several months. And one of the things that I, I, I've been trying to parse out is not what Jesus has done, but just who he is. Because again, and I said this in the beginning, I want to anchor down here. I think that our confidence in what Jesus has accomplished and will accomplish is directly, our ability to be confident in him is directly tied to our personal knowledge of him. 
not the kind of stuff that Jesus would put on his Facebook. The kind of stuff that he reveals intimately over time, right here in his word. Um, Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians 3.18 that we all with, unveiled ha- uh, with an unveiled face behold the glory of the Lord. Whoa. <laughs> and we're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Now, that's a really rich text. I'm not going to get stuck there very long, but the thing that you need to know is there's no silver bullets there. There's no magic tricks. He's not going to pull a rabbit out of his hat and go, poof, you're sanctified, Right? One degree of glory to another. It's a slow process. Amen? (laughs) Because, like, I could look at my own life and be like, dude, are you kidding me? He's 20 years in, and we're still dealing with this? Like, can we pick up the pace here? And God's like, dude, I was going to ask you the same thing right now. (laughs) Right? Um, But that's the side of Jesus that I want to get to for a minute. So I want you to bow your heads with me, and we're going to do something. Um, The Bible talks a lot about seeing uh, uh, um, but not being able to see and about hearing but not being able to hear. And I, I think it's talking about this dynamic where there's a type of familiarity that makes us miss out on the depth and the beauty of the thing that's in front of us, right? Because we have a lot of experience with it and, and a lot of background in the church or maybe there's other hurdles and we go, yeah, 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 I get that part. But what I want us to do is stop for just a second because they don't think that, that you or me can really see and savor Jesus that there's not a commitment to slow down for a second. So I want to give us a second to stop, and I want you to pray for you. This isn't the time to pray for the lost guy at work or your friend at school or whatever. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you see and to help you hear the reality of Jesus in a way that goes beyond where you currently sit. And it doesn't matter where that is. Maybe we're all in different places. But ask the Holy Spirit to take you in a place that goes beyond where you currently stand with him. Right? So I'm going to give you a second to do that. You pray for you and ask the Spirit of God to minister to you, and we're going to dive into John chapter 4. God, I pray that in your mercy that you give us eyes to see and, us, and, and ears to hear so that we can sense and savor Jesus as, as we consider that he's the Messiah, that he's the Christ, that he's the Savior of the world, and that you would jostle our hearts and our heads, and, and that you wouldn't let me especially run straight out of my heart and up into my brain so that I can rationalize it, um, but that you would engage all of us in a, in a holistic way where we can be transformed yet another degree. I know that I am sometimes very weary of myself. So will you minister to us today? And it's in your beautiful name that I pray. Amen. Cool. So John chapter 4, and we're going to read like 40-something verses together right now. But you guys are going to do great, right? I know it. So hang with me um, as we go through uh, John 4. Now, real quick, there's a couple different ways to read the Scripture. You'd read it really uh, like a newspaper, like, I'm trying to get the facts down because i got to write them in my Bible journal. And i got to post a picture of my Bible journal with my coffee, and then i got to get out the door. Right? Or, which isn't always bad. Sometimes it's good to extract facts from the Bible. We're going to do a lot of that um, in Hebrews. Um, sometimes you can read it really uh, personally. Like a kid reading a story. 
they want all the characters to have different voices. And they, if you've ever listened to a little kid read a book with you, they drop themselves right down into the middle of it. And it is impossible to distinguish reality from fantasy. This is a real thing. These are real characters, right? It, like, think of, it's like a little movie in their brain. And I do that sometimes where I either, maybe as a musician, I go, what would the soundtrack be right here? What would the music be doing? What would this guy's theme song be? How would the sun set on the scene? Where would Jesus be sitting? Where would the woman at the well be sitting? How would this action be going down? And we drop right into the middle of it, try to immerse in it a little bit. I want to be able to smell what it smelled like on that day, right? And I want to put us in the middle of this text. Uh, John chapter four, verse one. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, uh, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. The verse four is an interesting verse, uh, he, and he had to pass through Samaria. So if you write in your Bible or you're taking notes, make a note of that or, or underline it or highlight in your iPad or whatever, and we're going to come back to it. Um, verse 5, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there, so Jesus wearied as he was uh, from his journey, which is really an interesting sentence, right? This is this humanity, the, the human side of God coming out here that he's just tired from his journey, right? So we think of Jesus as God all the time. We talk about Jesus of God about, as though he's God all the time, and that's right, because he is. But Jesus is also human, and it's not like a like a taco combo plate where like you get four tacos and you go, okay, so I want like two of the fish tacos and two of the steak tacos. So he's like kind of part God and part man. It's not hybrid. In fact, the first several hundred years of theology was almost exclusively devoted to understanding called the hypo, to, to understand something called the hypostatic union, which is how can something be fully one thing and fully something else at the same time? It's like square circle. It doesn't fit. So if you want to be two complete beings, there has to be two complete beings. But it wasn't that. I like this because, I, I like that verse because it's just incredibly human. There's nothing divine about that. Um, Jesus was wearied from his journey. So verse six, so Jesus is uh, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, <clears throat> and it was about the sixth hour. Super, super simple to understand uh, the concept of time there. They, they took the time between sunrise and the time between sunset, and they divided it into 12 parts. That's it. So if the sun came up at six and it's the sixth hour, it would be high noon, right? Uh, verse seven, a woman from Samaria came to draw water and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Another insight into uh, the great humanity of Jesus, that he's thirsty and he is tired and he's hungry. So he sent the boys to go get sandwiches and he took a load off and he sat down at the well, right? Not just because he was tired, also because he had an appointment. But that's, the, in the, that's in the God day planner. Like in the, in the human day planner, it's like, ding, tired, rest. Uh, verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, asked for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Well, why would she even ask that question? I'm glad you asked. Um, the Bible <laughs> answers us at the end of verse 9, for Jews have no dealings with Samaria. Uh, Jesus, in verse 10, answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him in verse 11, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where Where do you get that living water? So she's not getting the point, which is okay. Jesus doesn't mock her. Are are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well, and he drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Now, Jesus lets that one slide. 
If he's talking to the Pharisees right now, he would have antagonized them with it and said, yes, actually, I am totally greater than Jacob. And Abraham and Moses and all the other people that you think are really awesome and are, that were just doing my bidding back then, right? Um, but he lets it slide because that's not where he's going with her. Um, Jesus said in verse 13, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I'll give him will never be thirsty again. And the water that I'll give him will become a, in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life. Verse 15, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Now, verse 16, pay attention because this is pivotal uh, about what we're going to talk about today. Go and call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I don't have a husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying, I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the man that you have now is not your husband. What you've said is true. And the woman said to him in verse 19, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Duh, right? Um, our, our fathers worshiped upon this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. But we worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. And God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And the woman said to him, I, I know that the Messiah is coming, the one who's called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. Verse 26, I who speak to you am he. So we're going to s- skip verse 30, 31 through 38. It's not that it's not important. It's the inerrant word of God. Um, it's just that for where we're going today, um, we're going to skip it. So but it, all that happened is Jesus' disciples came back, which is kind of like, send in the clowns, right? Because there's this intimate moment with Jesus and this woman, and they hear, here they come with with sandwiches. And they're super stoked because they did it, and they didn't screw it up, and they made it back with the sandwiches. But like, if this was Shakespeare, it'd be perfect, because Shakespeare likes to take really heavy moments, like someone has just impaled himself with a sword, and then something funny happens to kind of lighten the mood, right? That's what the disciples are most of the time. At least as I read it. It's like, here come the idiots to, to raise the tension in the room, right? Um, so that's why we're going to skip it. So, um, and they don't address what has just happened at all. Um, uh, there, if you skip down to verse 39, um, many Samaritans from the town... Um, Oh, wait, sorry. Uh, verse 39, blah, blah, blah. So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and they were coming to him. And many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed for two days and many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we've heard it ourselves, and we know that this man is indeed the Savior of the world. So there's so much in this text that you could do a whole series right here. Um, There's a lot of things mixed into it. They're kind of epic. Um, Here are the main points. Verse 26, I am he. Big deal. Verse uh, 42, right? Because I am he, Jesus said that on himself. I am he. I am the Messiah that you've been waiting for. And it's kind of like he surveyed the whole thing, and she's going, oh, I don't want to stay in this intimate place. What about, where should I go to worship? It doesn't matter. Spirit and truth. I know there's a Messiah coming, and he kind of, checkmate. That's me. Right here. She had nowhere to go from that. 
right? And she was emboldened and transformed. She ran into the town and the people now, verse 42, which is the second kind of thing that we take from it. They are now saying this man is the savior of the world. So the thrust of this narrative is that Jesus is the Messiah um, and that because Jesus is the Messiah, he's the savior of the world. Um, There's some cultural oddities here. Uh, Verse four, and I said in the beginning, you should underline that or highlight it. Um, that there, there are two routes from Jerusalem to Galilee, right? So it's pretty much just a straight shot north if you want to go from Jerusalem to Galilee. The, the Jews, it is said that they wouldn't walk straight north, which is a really convenient path of travel, right? all the way down north. They would actually go all the way around, cross the Jordan River, which probably wasn't super easy depending on the time of year, and then walk all the way up, and they could see Samaria over there, like, don't come near me, it's, and then they cross back. Once they passed Samaria, they'd cross back over the Jordan, um, and they would get to Galilee that way. They hated the Samaritans that much, apparently. Um, Jesus travels straight. He just heads straight north, right? So if you translate that, by the way, into 2016 language, like for someone to say something like, I have no dealings with blacks. What? I, I don't deal with Jews. People feel that way in their hearts today, but they don't say those things out loud because then we'd be branded like that. Long, not so long ago, that wouldn't have been a big deal. Now, that is not something that we would be comfortable with, but here it is right here, right? So uh, John doesn't give us any indication that he prepared his disciples for this. I, I don't know if this is confusing for them. I don't know if they're ready for it spiritually, but he's taking them right into the middle of the cultural awkwardness of their day without any apologies or any explanations. As we read through the part that we skipped, it says when they came back, they were surprised, but no one said anything. (laughs) Got the food. (laughs) Can you believe this guy? Right? There's no prep for this. And he thrusts straight in the middle. He just heads north because he has an appointment with who? This woman. Why? Because he's the savior of the world. So if by the grace of God, and we talk a little bit about uh, the woman and her community. If by the grace of God you've ever been to go, uh, able, able to go on a short-term mission trip, then you, if you've gone to a place that doesn't have indoor plumbing, you've probably seen people going out to get water. Right, this is still something that happens today. The sun comes up, and they go as a communal exercise, and they head to the well together. They get their buckets and their barrels or anything else that can hold water. And the, the, the women just herd, and they head down there, and they do what women do, right? They talk about their husbands. They talk about their kids, right? The only difference is they're not wearing yoga pants here or something like that, <laughs> right? But this really the same thing that happened. It's a very communal. <laughs> I go to the bathroom, <laughs> right? Um, this woman is not part of that communal experience. A big deal. She doesn't have any friends. No, big deal because she's walking miles through the desert in the middle of the day when the sun is at its highest point, bearing straight down on her to get water. So she's carrying this big empty jug and she's going to fill it and water weighs just FY about eight, 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 eight pounds per gallon. So depending on how many gallons this was, she's going to carry this thing all the way back into town. Rather than do the... She's not part of that, right? Um, not 100% sure why, right? Either perceived judgment from the, the people that she lived among or actual judgment. The Bible doesn't say, right? But she's had five husbands, and the man she's with now is not her husband. And today, that would just sound like you had some crazy college years, but back then it could get you killed. 
because she's an adulteress. So maybe she's really promiscuous. Maybe those five dudes died. I don't know. Maybe she had five husbands. They died. And the guy she's with now is like, a black widow. I'm not, I'm not going to marry you. Right? But either way, she was living with or ostensibly having sex with a man who was not her husband. And shame has permeated her life in a, in a deep way and, and has affected her ability to walk in the community. And she now spends her energy and her vitality hiding. So in the middle of the day in the heat, when she knows no one else is going to be there, avoiding the community in which she lives, she heads to the well and the Savior of the world is there. And I love this. And maybe this sounds hard to you. This next part may sound a little tough, and I hope it doesn't. I hope it makes sense and it clicks. And that's part of the reason I wanted to pray earlier, because it's not really one to teach about. It's not, I, I kind of try to avoid this, but this particular part right here, I, I can't get away from it. And it's plowed my heart in the last couple of weeks, right? So Jesus, notice he doesn't avoid her sin. And this woman is desperate. Give me this water that you're talking about because I don't have to come here in the middle of the day. Give it to me. And he doesn't go, okay, bless you, daughter. He says, go get your husband. That's, That's almost cruel, right? Go get your husband and come back. And she's, she's desperate. There's a desperate woman. Give me this water so I don't have to come to the well anymore. I'm weary of what my life is. I'm weary of hiding. I'm weary of coming out here in the middle of the day. I'm weary of this. Give me this water. Go get your husband. And it sounds cruel. Give me this, please. And he reaches out and he pokes the most tender, most shame-filled, guilt-ridden part of her life. And she replies, I don't have a husband. And he says, yeah, you're right. In fact, I'm going to tell you some things about you that, that expound upon that statement before you even have a chance to tell me. You've had five husbands, and the man you're with right now isn't your husband. Why would Jesus do that? Because if you're trying to win converts, this is probably not the way to go. Right? Can we agree with that? Just give her the living water, yo. <laughs> and all of a sudden, this really painful heart-level, gut-level stuff's kind of drudged up, and it's the stuff we bury into our subconscious, right? And we don't want to deal with it. And yet, here's Jesus. You want living water? Go get your husband. I, I, what, 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 I don't have a husband. And she's come out in the middle of the day to, be, to, to avoid being wounded by the stares and the whispers of others, right? If we're going back to the movie in our head, right? We're watching this woman walk. She's not, <laughs> this is not her demeanor right now. Most likely. Now, granted, it doesn't say this in the scripture. Understand that I'm inflecting this because I want us to feel that. I don't want to just, we've heard this story before. Yeah, 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 I get to the point. What's the point when I'm supposed to pray and then we sing more songs? I want to stick in this moment. Understand she's probably not zippity doodah on the way to the well. Right? She's really dirty. She probably feels ashamed and she's hiding and she's been wildly successful at avoiding the judgment, at least not seeing the stares and the whispers of other, but she hasn't been healed. And the, the, the thing that's the worst for her is that she's actually now become enslaved to her guilt and shame and sin. And Jesus being the savior of the world and being rich in love engages that spot to pull it right out of the middle of her. The most sensitive thing about her. And if you think about it, those are the places that we go to to hide, right? And I think that they're the primary hurdles that we have to being known by Jesus personally. 
this is going to sound kind of weird, but, but work with me on it. I think that you can be a Christian and have an impersonal relationship with Jesus. Right, we just got out of Romans, and Romans 9, or, or 10, 9 and 10 says what? If you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth, then you're going to be saved. Done. Check. Salvation. Salvation isn't the intimate part. It is the genesis. Now comes sanctification. Now comes the nitty-gritty. Now comes that moment when Jesus touches the things that we try to hide the things that James Smith did not put on his Facebook, the things I can't learn about him in 10 minutes, right? So I think you can be a Christian and not have an intimate relationship with Jesus. I run risk of that daily because I do a lot of stuff here and I want to parse, separate, and understand because it makes me feel like I'm in control. And I want to be in control. And that's how I do it other people have different ways that they exert control. But that's what's so crazy about this text is Jesus is not taken off guard. He knows exactly what he's doing and he's going after the spot that he doesn't want anyone to touch because it's too tender and yet in the touch of Christ, it's healed. And it's that he's willing to learn the most delicate wound and he woos her out of it. And we are now at a level of the heart here in this moment that is wildly uncomfortable for all of us, Right? And if you've ever done any kind of ministry or counseling right now to go back to the movie that I'm trying to create, this is all snot and tears right now. This is not a casual conversation that she's, yes, actually, I have had five husbands and the man I'm sleeping with right now is not my husband. This is not like that. She is blubbering mess. Okay, this is her brokenness and he just pulled it right out of the middle of her as she's already desperate for this living water that he's talking about. And we're not comfortable there. So she does what we all do, and she deflects a little bit. She's like, well, so where would I go to worship? They say here, or maybe the mountain, or there's a lovely church in Jerusalem. And she wants to talk about something else. Or maybe she's convicted of her sin, and she wants to go make a sacrifice. Also entirely possible. And she's like, well, hey, you seem to be really smart. Where should I make that sacrifice? Where would I do that exactly? So there's two potential reasons why that logically would have come up. But she, she does redirect out of that conversation, and Jesus said, T -t 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 -t. come on. The truth is, it doesn't matter. Here, worship me here, in the place where you hide all your crap. So I'm going to take it out, right? With my left hand, I'm going to take it out. With my right hand, I'm going to put it back in. Verse 19, the Jews say we're to worship here. Stop. Doesn't matter. Stay with me here, woman. And we do that all the time with feelings. I do that with feelings all the time. It's like awkward silence. No, no, I'm not staying down here because that's weird. And it's, I'm kind of freaked out. And I feel, I don't feel transparent. I feel vulnerable. Because transparency is cool, Right? And those two things aren't the same. Transparent is a little edgy. We're being open. We're being candid. We're being vulnerable, right? It's authentic. But vulnerability is something altogether different, and no one likes it. And it feels weird, and it feels weak. And I love Jesus' answer there. What, what mountain is it? Does this neither mountain nor this mountain or anything worship me in spirit and truth? And she's like, okay, well, the Messiah is coming. She redirects again. Well, I know someone's going to come. The Messiah is going to come, and he's going to do all this stuff. 
And Jesus, that's me. It's checkmate, woman. It's right now. It's a yes or no. You're nothing left. I have just identified myself as the Messiah. Since we're cutting to the vulnerable part, that's me. That's who I am. And the disciples come in again, right? The clowns. They show up and she's all puffy-eyed and messy and no one even says anything. Something weird's just clearly gone on. And literally, they show up and the Bible actually says they said no, no one says anything. They don't go, hey, is everything okay? What's going on? Why are you even talking to the Samaritan woman? They just, no one says anything. And she runs off boldly into the community that she's been hiding from. And she says, come see this man who told me everything I ever did. Emboldened by the grace, immediately emboldened by the grace of Christ's touch, that broken part, she runs into the town that she's been hiding from. Now we can read this in a really impersonal way, right? We open up our journals, make a few notes, got some facts based upon the text, and we take a quick picture of the Bible at the coffee, remember, and we put it up, and we're just, just fight that off. Stay with me. This is about you and Jesus right now. And that's why we prayed in the beginning, and I hope that you're still in that place. Right? This is just about you and the Jesus. And we go on and write your next sentence. Stop. Fight that urge. Because it's not about the people. It's not even about the woman right now. It's about me and Jesus. So dial in and get this moment where Jesus introduces freedom into cultural dynamics. And there's all these true statements emboldened in this text. In this text, Jesus makes people bold and he removes and he relieves people's guilt and shame and, and testimonies and powerful things begin to happen. We could write all of that in our journal or we could close it. We could put it away, go on about our day and, and move forward. And that's reading the Bible in a way that's a little bit unpersonal. But tonight I want to sit in that moment and say, hey, listen, if you can't follow where we're going to go right now, then the rest of this isn't going to make sense to you. And that's okay. Where's your well? Right? Where's my well? Because the last time I had a moment like this, in total vulnerability, the last time I had a moment like this, I was registering into Men's Central Jail in downtown Los Angeles. And I was tired. And it's not like you don't, it's not like the movies where you just show up and you're like out and then you're in. It takes about 13 hours to be in. And room after room after room after room. And to be totally honest, what I was thinking was, I can't drink right now because this is really stressing me out. Right? Anything will do. Caffeine, coffee, just so thirsty in that moment. I was just thirsty. I was dying. And I know the process because it wasn't, wasn't the first time. And I knew it was going to be a while until I would have anything potable to drink. And I started thinking about John chapter 4. And he says, dude, I got water to drink that you don't know anything about. That's the last well moment that I had. So the reality, by the way, if there's any business guys in the room, this is a horrible, inefficient model for saving the world again. Right? And that's the personal side of Jesus. That he's got this huge crowd of people waiting for him in Galilee. This massive crowd of people. And he stops in Samaria to talk to a single woman who's a perpetual adulterer, more than likely, right? And he says, let's spend some time healing her deepest wound and let's hang out with her and her loser friends for two more days in the middle of a huge cultural awkwardness because he's the savior of the world. 
And I think about this woman and what happened after this encounter. I wonder if she followed him or if she saw him teach again, if she stood at the foot of the cross when the sun went dark and Jesus said the words, it's finished. Did she stand there with other brave women who were noted to be there and say, it's done. And she remember the moment when she said, I got all this stuff going on. And Jesus said, I got you covered. Right? Did, did it click for her right there that, that he had to hang there covered in shame so that she could stand beside him covered in glory? So just briefly, because maybe you're not a Christian. I don't know. Maybe you are, and it's really impersonal. You've got the checklist going. Maybe you haven't had a moment like this. But I assure you that there are things in here that you do this with. And they are not things that we talk about. Right? With each other. And I'm not saying that you need to just walk up and talk about awkward stuff all of the time. Because it doesn't need to be that either. Hey, how you doing? Great. Looked at porn all day yesterday. Nope. Uh, Whoa. You don't need to do that. I'm not saying just make people uncomfortable for the sake of making them uncomfortable. I'm saying that there are things here, right, that Jesus desires to woo out of you in an effort to know you intimately, because he doesn't want you to know about him. He wants you to know him. And the idea that we could hide it to begin with is preposterous. So as we, as we close this down, and we think about this idea that Jesus is not the Messiah of narrow Jewish expectation, that he's the savior of the world, and that he's singing uh, the religious devotion. If you go back one chapter in John, there's the religious devotionalist in chapter three. He's the most religious guy. And Jesus is definitely seeking him, but he's also singing the disenfranchised, broken woman in chapter four. And what unites them is their need for a savior. In chapter 3, right before, we learn that no one's so good that they don't need a Savior. And in chapter 4, we learn that no one is so far gone that Jesus can't save them. And Zach is going to launch into the Beatitudes next week. He's going to start with the words, Blessed are the... Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Yeah? Yeah. Blessed are the poor in spirit. So bow your heads with me. And take another second before the music starts, right? That forget everything else. Close your Bible, close your journal, and open your heart. Close your brain, even to some degree. And before we launch into Hebrews and start reading the resume of Jesus Christ, take a second to sit at the foot of Jesus who wants to woo out of you the things that you desire to hide from him. The things that you want to keep secret from him. (laughs) In, In the book of Mark, there's another remarkable encounter that Jesus has with a woman. says he was passing by her and she reaches out to touch his cloak and then he stopped and he turned around and you could ask yourself why doesn't Jesus just walk straight up to her and encounter he knew that she was there he knew that she was broken he knew that she was probably hiding there 
that she had had a, a problem, a female problem for years, right? And he passes by her, and she reaches out. She touches his cloak, because she said in her head, if I only touch his cloak, I'll be healed. So he'd passed by her, and it says, and he turned and saw her and said, take heart, daughter, for your faith has healed you. Because Jesus requires something from us. He didn't stop at the side of the street and magically identify her and go, hey, woman with a female problem, I'm here to heal you. I'm the son of God, and I'd like to do a miracle. He didn't do that. He requires something from us. And maybe tonight, all of this is a foreign language. I don't know who Jesus is. I sort of do. I don't really get the joke, though. I don't get the Romans thing. I don't get the impersonal knowledge. I don't get the personal side. Trying to put it together. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're in a different group. But know this, as we enter into worship, that there is a Jesus who stands in front of you and wants to know you intimately and who is not scared of the things that scare you. And he was not afraid of the things that you fear and wants to extract them from you, not to mock you or see you hang your head in shame, but so that he can remove them and fill them with something else, fill that void with something else. So we're gonna sing now All who are thirsty, all who are weak, come to the fountain and dip your heart in the stream of life. And we sing that together at the foot of a cross where once hung a Jesus who is your living water. So eliminate everything else and sing tonight to him just as his child. Jesus, Thank you for not just being a huge, massive, all-powerful, all-knowing God. Thank you for not just being the, the author and creator of the world and of the universe and the one who holds it in his hand. Thank you for not just being a God of righteousness that required judgment. Thank you for being the God who turns around and would come back to us and say, look, it's broken, but I can fix it. But you got to sit in front of me and you got you to gotta show yourself to me. You got to come out from where you're hiding and let me heal you. You've got you've to sit in front of me and be vulnerable so that I can come inside you and permeate you. And so that I can sanctify you from one degree of glory to another. And it's going to be painful sometimes. And it's going to be scary sometimes. And sometimes it's going to be great but I need you to start by sitting there in front of me. This doesn't just happen in in our, our brains. It happens in our hearts. And thank you for being the God who wants that from us, who lets us remain important to him as individuals that he created with uniqueness and beauty, all different from each other, but that doesn't want to leave us in, in the mess that we find ourselves in. The Jesus who doesn't want to see us surrender our individuality, but doesn't want to see us serve as our own God and doesn't want to see us serve as our own attempt at gospel and doesn't want to see us 
serve as our own attempt at bad news and wants to redirect us from, where, where should I go to church or where should I do this? doesn't matter. Worship me in spirit and in truth from the broken, contrite heart that you have inside of you. Right? And just like when, when a right picture of God goes away and we fill it with, with stuff because we are made to worship, when you pull that stuff back out and put yourself in the void and allow us in our brokenness to come forward and worship you, we begin to know you intimately. To be adopted by you. To be loved by you. To become thirsty for you. It's in your son's glorious name that we pray these things. The, the son who is our living water and our bread of life, who was and is before Abraham, and who will always be after all of this is over, whose teachings are sound, and whose heart is to provide for our spiritual needs. Who didn't say, I have accomplished things like bread, but said, I am bread. Eat my body. And remember that it was broken for you. I am the vine. I am the one.